Hello, and thanks for joining us for another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a fresh and insightful interview featuring one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. You can subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. And if you're enjoying the director's cut, please take a moment to like, share, or comment. We love hearing your feedback. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Keith Maitland's new documentary, Tower. Told through archival footage combined with animation, Mr. Maitland's film recalls the August afternoon in 1966 when a gunman opened fire from the top floor of the iconic University of Texas Tower. Based entirely on first-person testimonies from witnesses, heroes, and survivors of the tragedy, the film highlights the realities that forever changed the nation's concept of homegrown evil. Tower was screened as part of the DGA's documentary series, which aims to spotlight groundbreaking nonfiction films for DGA members and guests by presenting screenings of documentaries as well as conversations with their directors. In addition to Tower, Mr. Maitland's filmography includes the feature documentaries A Song for You, The Austin City Limits Story, and The Eyes of Me, and the episode The Eyes of Me of the television documentary series Independent Lens. Tower won the Audience Award, South by Southwest Grand Jury Award, and Lewis Black Lone Star Award at the 2016 South by Southwest Film Festival. After the documentary series screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Maitland spoke with director Andy Timoner about filming Tower. During their conversation, Mr. Maitland discusses how his journey to direct this film began in 2006, how blending the archival footage with rotoscope animation was crucial to telling the story, and his approach to selecting actors to portray the survivors of the tragedy. Hi, I'm Andy uh, Timoner. Keith, please come on up. Let's give a round of applause to Keith Maitland for this incredible work. I missed introducing the film, so you get to have a post-film introduction as to why I, I wanted to share it with you tonight. Um, I just find it to be, I think one of the biggest challenges, I guess we should sit down. I think one of the biggest challenges in documentary is creating a visceral experience. Um, you know, getting us out of the talking head, getting us out of the traditional, we're being told a story, in this case, a retrospective. And I was just so moved by the film. Um, the the style is so extraordinary. And, uh, and I think, you know, obviously it being the first school shooting and now we're just subsumed by them. Uh, it's just a very, a very prescient film, I feel. Uh, but what you did with the rotoscope, I'd love to talk about uh, just to kick off the Q&A. Um, did you shoot everything live action and then animate on top of it? And you have some actors in the house, don't you? Yeah, tell yeah. Me, tell me about the process. Tell us about the process. Sure. Um, thank you. Uh, and thank you all for sticking around. Um, yeah, so the rotoscopic animation, um, what separates the that style of animation from 3D animation, computer generated animation, or even old school like Bugs Bunny, you know, 2D animation uh, is the power of the humanity of the actors' performances below 
the animation. Um, and so, yes, it's a, uh, exciting for me to introduce you all to uh, the t two of the stars of Tower, uh, Violet Bean and Violet, who played Claire, our pregnant friend, and Josephine McAdam, who played Rita, the woman who ran up and, and spent time with Claire. Um, and it was their performances that bring the animation um, to life for me. Um, and, and, you know, these are real people. Our process started with those white backdrop interviews that end the film. That was our first step in the film. So I know and knew these, these real folks before we ever, you know, um, staged a single recreation. And so we were casting actors to resemble the real people, certainly, but much more so to carry uh, forward a performance that connected with the authenticity of those very real people. Um, and because we always knew that there would be a moment where uh, Violet's animated visage would become the real Claire, um, it was so important to find somebody who could carry the spirit of Claire and who could recognize, so that we could all recognize that humanity um, in that performance. And I think, I mean, I, I think that what is, you know, I was thinking about what is this film really about today and um just seeing all of these you know these different shades of humanity uh in this one moment uh it's quite something i mean claire in your film is never sad she's like losing her baby and she's never really she doesn't express it that way um tell me about tell me about that and your process with sitting down with these folks to talk about this, some of whom tell you by the end of the film that they haven't spoken about it or ever in some cases, um, and where you got to in terms of like, did you did you find Claire always was kind of, well, of course I forgave, as she says, and she was kind of always speaking in that way, uh, or did you uh, did you make decisions? In terms of that, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, we certainly made decisions, but not we didn't have to make that decision. Um, Claire is one of the most unique people I've ever met in that she is always finding the most optimistic way to kind of connect. And it's not a false optimism or like a kind of like put upon like sunny disposition that hides, you know, some dark. Um, she is just the type of person who she throws herself fully into anything that she's doing and she does it straight, you know, straight from her heart. Um, and it's disarming. Um, when you meet somebody like that, because, uh, you know, I have to say, like, I thought for years before making this film about whether or not to, to endeavor to tell this story. And the thing that was always the scariest for me was that first phone call um, to reach out to somebody and say, hi, you don't know me. Uh, I don't have that many credits to my name, but I want to make a film about the worst thing that happened to you 50 years ago. And I'm going to make it a cartoon um, and it's going to take us three or four years before you see anything. Um, and we're not even sure we're ever going to be able to make it because we don't have any money yet. Um, tell me your story. Um, yeah, that doesn't sound, I bet that's not what you said. It wasn't exactly like that, but it wasn't that far off. I mean, that was the territory that had to be covered on the first call with each of these folks. Um, as I didn't, I couldn't stand the idea of like, I, I wasn't going to trick anybody into participating and then say, ha ha cartoon. Um, and certainly we don't consider it a cartoon, you know, um, you know, beautifully rendered animation is, uh, how we try and, you know, talk about it. And it is, I mean, I, I want to say, and I, I want to actually get to your inspiration 
for telling this, but while you're talking about the animation, archival footage, absolutely crisp archival black and white footage, and then in comes rolling a blue VW bug, you know, and then again, archival footage to exactly about where the bicycle was hit, and in comes this red bicycle. And then the interviews in black and white, the flashbacks in color, and then when they're shot, it's red with white. Was this all form coming from the content, or were you, Keith Maitland, the director, saying, this is a vision I have for telling this story? And I'm, you know, like, it was was very interesting to me. Um, And then cutting, when you cut to the real people, it's not just at the end. It was like 35 minutes into the movie. And it's a it's a gasping moment. At least it was for me the first time I saw it. It's just, whoa, there's the, the real person. Um, is that the kind of thing that you figured all this, you figured out based on that first interview and everything kind of extrapolated from there? Um, um, not exactly. Uh, the story to Making Tower was um, was a long and twisting road. We um, got time. Yeah. Uh, I first came up with the idea to make this film in 2006. Um, it was the 40th anniversary of the tower shooting. And Texas Monthly, the magazine, released an oral history of that day. Uh, and the the writer of that had interviewed about 30 people that were there. And they all told these different snippets that kind of cut together to reveal um, this kind of unified truth. They weren't so much characters as they were just perspectives. Um, but it read like reading the transcript of a documentary. And I've read quite a few transcripts, uh, you know, as I'm making documentaries. So I was just putting it together as I was reading the article. And um, I had done research on this subject before. I had seen the black and white archival footage. Um, I went to the University of Texas, and I knew that campus very well. So as I was reading these stories, I was placing myself in those places. And I knew what it felt like. I knew what it, lo- well, I knew what it looked like. And they were telling me what it felt like. And then I could go to YouTube and look at this footage, you know, a portion of the footage was available and see the black and white. And it was really the moment that Claire describes, and it's in the article, uh, this redheaded co-ed came running out. And I had been imagining the scene in black and white, and suddenly I saw it in black and white with the shock of, of bright red hair. And it was in that moment that I said, oh, it needs to be animated, because that's going to look silly uh, unless it's animated. And, uh, and along the same time, I was thinking, and the university would never let us shoot recreations on campus. Um, they don't even, you know, up, up until recently, they didn't even have a memorial on campus. It wasn't something they acknowledged publicly. There was no way they were going to let me come in, stage, you know, these dramatic, bloody recreations with hundreds and hundreds of extras and guns. And no, of course, right, right. But, but the animation is a tool that would allow, so I was literally reading the article and all this kind of like, that stuff all kind of came at once. And it was like, oh, this could be a movie. This could be an animated movie. I want to make this movie. But I was making another movie. I was making my first feature documentary at the time. And I said, well, I can't do it now. And I probably can't do it for the next three Which or four years. This is, uh, it's a movie about four blind teenagers called The Eyes of Me. And it was my first. And it's a verite film that follows these four kids through the, over the course of a year in their life. They all had sight and then lost it. And for that film, I used rotoscopic animation to dig into questions of perception um, because they could all talk about what it was like to have sight and what it was like to lose sight and what that felt and looked like. So I was playing with this new medium for me as I was reading this article, and it kind of all just came together. 
But it was six years from that article till when I committed to making the film. And during that six years, I talked myself out of and into and out of again. Um, but so much of the form came during those six years of thinking about it and talking to anyone who wanted to talk about it. Um, and plenty of people who didn't, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, I took, uh, I love authentic stories of history. Um, so I went back and I watched a lot of movies from 1966. Um, and one of them was one of those great Clint Eastwood films, uh, Fistful of Dollars. Um, and the opening sequence of Fistful of Dollars uh, is this field of maroon red with white silhouettes of horsemen uh, traveling across this field of red. And when I saw that, I said, oh, that's, that's such a great abstracted way to kind of create a feeling of, of intense trauma or desperation. And I knew I didn't want to do a blood splattery rendition. And that became, that's what we'll do when they get shot. We'll, 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 we'll flash frame to that. And that's where that, um, that's what, the, I mean, the, the thing that I felt was they go from being human to just being a mark, you know, a form of white and blood and red, you know, and, uh, it was, I mean, it's great. And then even when you're, when you're going back to the real interviews and now you're talking to a person who's looking back 50 years earlier, uh, and you flash back into that animation, it still gives you a jolt. You know, I've always wanted to do an animated feature. I was super drawn to your film for that reason, but I also like the restraint in your style. You Thank know? you. Yeah. Well, and I wanted to just the color you mentioned, the palette. So we made, I knew it had to be black and white because the archival footage was black and white and I wanted them to cut seamlessly. And that was a word we use a lot in our edit. And we kind of said, my goal is that three days from now, a week from now, you won't remember what was in archival footage and what was in animation. You won't remember what was said by the young actor performing the lines and what was said by the real people. It should, it should all blend um, like memories do because it's a movie about memory. Um, but I also knew like watching a, a, a black and white film all the way through um, and knowing that I would use red for Rita's hair, I said, where else can I use color? I'm going to want color. Um, and that is something that was born out of the interview. So when I interviewed Claire, every time I talked about Tom and every time she talked about Tom, she had that, that, that demeanor that we were discussing before. And then when she would say his name, she would transform into an 18-year-old girl who was in the throes of first love, right in front of my eyes. And she said, you know, he was a poet. He played the banjo. We just fell in love. And I was so, like, in this heavy interview that I was doing, it was like an hour and 45-minute interview, I was so grateful that she had taken us to this light place. And it was while we were looking at the, at the dailies from that interview that it occurred to me, I said, the movie needs this. It, you know, this is a lot of time to spend in this in this dark and heavy heavy place. But Claire has just done us this favor of transporting us into love, and and the movie needs love too. And it was like psychedelia. And then it was like, well, yeah, well, if we're gonna do love, let's you know, the summer of love is actually the next year. But I said, let's let's get let's call it Claire and Tom's summer of love, and and then we you know had some fun um, visually. It was really really sweet. I'd like to open it up though, make sure that. Other people have a chance to ask questions. And I, I'd like to welcome you to feel free to ask questions of Violet and Josephine as well. Um, two very talented young actresses uh, and ac actors from Austin who now live here in L.A. One thing to uh, kick it off, the Generally review. You've got a question? Did I see a hand go up or no? No? Um, 
Uh, I'll just keep going until somebody intervenes. Um, but so interview, transcripts of interviews, moments that you really want to write and script. And you script it, call these guys, they come down, and you're in a studio? No. Um, you're not on the steps of the clock tower. We're not on the steps of the clock tower. Where and are you? Well, a lot of times we're in my backyard. Perfect. Um, well, that's I mean, right, because you don't like to go straight too far from your creative I, zone. Yes, that's true. I don't like to stray too far. <laughs> and I also figure if you're going to run around with guns, uh, you know, might as well do it behind a six-foot privacy fence. Um, I live in East Austin. I've got a nice, you know, uh, half-acre backyard. And, I mean, we did some material in a um, uh, green screen studio, not because we needed the green screen, because we didn't, but because um, it was a it was a sensitive scene. It was actually the scene where Claire and Rita are doing most of their interactions. And we shot that in January. And I thought, if we do that in a parking lot, which is what our initial goal was, these young women would have to just lay down in, I mean, Austin doesn't have terrible winters, but it was still like 35 degrees outside. Um, so we rented a studio thinking that would be a little warmer. It wasn't much warmer, um, but that was like our one studio day. Um, but we shot all over. We kind of stole locations. The scenes that are in the stairway where the two cops are going up, I just found a stairway in like a warehouse not far from my house um, that was almost the exact same dimensions as the tower stairs. And so we just walked in there on a, I went up there on a Sunday afternoon and noticed they didn't lock the door. And so we just went up there on the next Sunday and in about an hour and a half, we, we shot that scene out. And on the other side of the warehouse, uh, my producer came over and she said, you know, there's an elevator over there. And it's like, hey, we got an elevator scene. And our cop was already there. And so, uh, so we knocked that one out too. Um, but it was really, I mean, that was fun for me. It was like, we got to be a little bit of like kind of guerrilla style, you know, uh, scripted, storyboarded um, approach to filmmaking, but but with a unique set of circumstances. Absolutely. And are you shooting like on a 5D or something into something discreet? Uh, yeah. Easy. Well, Canon C100s, which are C100s. pretty small. Um, but then a lot of the stuff we shot on iPhone. Um, anything in slow motion. The C100 doesn't shoot slow-mo. And so, uh, so we shot an iPhone. We shot some low angle stuff on the iPhone. And uh, the animators just needed it to be HD. And the less... Uh, the flatter the image, the better for them. Because when Linklater was doing it back in the day, wasn't he? He was like with just a regular DV camera. Yeah, I for, think he used like a handy waking cam. life and yeah. stuff. The early that early yeah. rotoscope. And and, and I board. some of the artists that worked on Tower were people that were that learned that skill on Waking Life and Scanner Darkly, Linklater's earlier films. Um, well, that's one thing we were talking about at dinner is just the community in the doc world is so strong. There's this, uh, you know, just desire to help each other. Um, and that couple that with Austin and the Austin film community is so super strong as well. Um, it's pretty remarkable. But it's not that everybody's peace and love in Austin because there was that guy that walks by before Rita shows up. And was that a true quote when he says, get up and get your books or whatever? I That is a true quote from Claire. Um, who who said that? Told sure us that story verbatim. Me. That's how I felt about it. You know, um, you know, when you're interviewing people as a documentary filmmaker, you know, you have to have a pretty good bullshit detector. And you know, when people are telling you a story, you know, sometimes your little your spidey sense goes off, and you say, "Well, it probably didn't happen that way," but I'm not going to interrupt you and say that. I'm just going to let you keep talking. Um, when Claire told that story, there was something about it, and just like the, looking at the footage and doing the research and looking at those times, I, I believed it. I believed it. 
I don't think that guy would have done that 15 minutes later when everybody had come to understand what was happening. But it was such a unique thing. Um, you know, there had only been one or two gunshots before he walked up. Uh, it was, you know, too easy to be confused. And, and to date now, I've talked to about 200 people who were on campus that day. And one of the things that they always say is how confused they were for like the first five or 10 minutes. Um, so I, I don't it's judge him as harshly. Imagine. Yes, I, I don't judge him as harshly. I see him as a, as a confused um, man with suitcase, which I think is his name in the script. Does he, uh, <laughs> did Claire go on and have children? I don't remember if you covered She that. She adopted um, a young man from uh, Africa uh, 24 years ago. Um, and he was actually born 20 years after the tower shooting. Um, and uh, and I, had a, I had a chance to spend some time with him. And it didn't make it into the final cut of the film, but I talked to him about Claire's first child who she lost. And he said, yeah, I think of him as my older brother. And, uh, and he's, a very, he's, he's a man of faith, and he imagines a day when he will get to meet his older brother. Wow. Well, the, uh, the strength of that guy who walks by and has that, let's call it a misunderstanding, even though blood must have been present. But uh, it really warms it really sets the stage for the interaction that Rita and Claire have and the kindness of that and just talking, the fact that they just spoke through it. And I feel, I felt, I don't know about you guys, but I felt like it was like metaphorical for just getting through life in general, even though they're lying there with a sniper overhead. It was just, let's just have a conversation, you know, let's talk to one another. Yeah. Slow it down and kind of acknowledge and, and appreciate each other. Yeah. There was just some, there were so many lessons in this movie that was on the face about this, this school shooting. But to you, I mean, what is it about? To me, it's a film about overcoming trauma. I didn't know that one. I mean, and we didn't set out to make a film about overcoming trauma. We set out to make a film that told an untold story and that acknowledged a history that had been kind of pushed into the shadows. But as really from the first interview with Claire and then Artley and, and then even the, the police officers and, and, the, and the other witnesses and the reporters, what came up time and time again was this question of guilt, um, survivor's guilt, uh, this, this repeated line, we didn't talk about it. I mean, everyone said that. We didn't want to talk about it. Nobody wanted to talk about it with us. As a matter of fact, when I called Claire and I had that phone call and I was so worried about reaching out to her, she said to me, I said, you know, I don't know if this is something you want to talk about. And she interrupted me. She said, no, no, I, I really want to talk about this. Nobody would talk about this with me for all these years, my friends and my family. Uh, I'm sure they were trying to protect her and assume she didn't want to talk about it. But she said, you know, there must be something in the air because just two weeks ago, I met the young man who rescued me. And his name is Artley, and, and you should call him. He lives in Austin. And, and I called him next and that same day. And he said, you know, I've lived here my, my whole life. I've never left town. And, uh, and I've never really told the story. I guess now is as good a time as any. Um, and that's when I realized I saw the pain in their eyes and I heard it in their voices. And as they got to know each other and as they reconnected with this history and as they learned each other's stories, it filled in blanks that they had been carrying around. Um, so that's how I see it. I see it as a film that's about overcoming trauma and I think that some of the lessons and some of the attitudes can be applied to any kind of trauma that, that people go through or, or have survived. I just don't, I don't know if we can, yeah, exactly. There we go. I was not going to let you go till you guys ask questions. Sorry, 
That's okay. Um, we were notoriously uh, cash-strapped um, through the making of the film, uh, but we uh, we spent a, you know a lot of money on the animation and a good amount of money on the music. Um, those are both you know I the aesthetics of the film were really important to me, um, you know, uh, and so that's what we put our energies and uh, we made sacrifices and other line items as independent filmmakers often do. Um, but we were also wise, you know, like uh, Monday, Monday had to be in there. That was the song at the top of the charts that very week. And it was a Monday shooting and dozens of people I talked to say, I remember what was playing on the radio that day. So that was kind of a no brainer. Um, we had hoped to, that maybe, you know, if we could show the people who own the rights to that song what the film was about, we could make some sort of deal. That didn't really work out, so we just paid full freight. Um, and then on some of the other songs, we just did our best to find... There's a lot of great, like, garage rock. Um, I, I was pretty adamant that there was no music in the film, pop music from that time that came out after August of 66. And that helped me a lot because all my favorite mu music from the 60s came out in 67 and 68. Um, so we just crossed all that stuff off the list. And, uh, and we found a music supervisor who actually hosted a radio show in Austin um, about psychedelic garage rock. Um, and she had all these great um, you know, pieces that, that weren't famous or popular, but really transported you. Um, all right, we have time for two more. But it, oh, wow, there's five. Okay, we have to do haiku type question answer now. Uh, the edit, well, like a lot of documentaries, the, the, a lot of the film is discovered in the edit, especially the last 30 minutes. Um, I was in a unique situation in that we made Tower simultaneously while making another feature-length documentary, a music documentary called A Song For You about Austin City Limits, the TV show. And so I used the same producers, the same editor, the same camera people, um, and we toggled between the two over a period of about two years. Sure. Um, uh, we could include it in the movie. We chose not to. And because of that, I won't go into great detail here in the room either. But I will tell you, if you go home and, and search UT Tower Shooting or Texas Tower Shooting, you'll find about 400 websites that want to answer that question for you. Um, you'll only find one place that wants to tell the story of the victims, and that's the Texas Monthly article that I optioned. And so it's because of that reason that I chose not to, to get into his story. Um, I will briefly say he's not a Vietnam vet, and he did not see combat. He was a Marine. Um, there are a lot of people that want to figure out why he did what he did. I don't believe that's a question that could be answered, and so that's part of the reason I never got it. I chose not to get into it. Thank you. Yay. All right, I'm, I'm going to do one more. Yeah. That's a good question. How much research did you guys do? Uh, well. None. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Admit it. Uh, well, Keith actually videoed all of his interviews with the real-life people and was able to show us those, which was amazing and obviously helped so much. Um, and I researched as much as I could about it, but like you said, most things are about the shooter. Um, and most people didn't talk about it. So it was really whatever you were able to give us, which really helped and was a lot. So thank you. Okay. Well, I wanted to present it tonight because I do think that, uh, you know, when you think about a documentary, um, it's important to realize that there's so many aspects that can be brought in, so many uh, different tools in our toolbox to bring nonfiction stories to life and to make them visceral 
and to make us really feel it so it hangs on you and that's what happened to me with this film and so thank you for coming thank you uh, to the director's guild tonight and for sharing it with us thanks for listening to another dga q a you can check out past episodes of the director's cut wherever you listen to podcasts or on our website at dga.org slash podcast also if you haven't already be sure to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.